Well, there's no better place to be on a Sunday morning than worshipping the Lord. The world does a lot of things uh, on a Sunday, but the Lord's people worship the Lord. And we've done that. We continue to do that now as we sit under the preaching of the Word of God. And the preacher sits under the preaching of the Word of God. All of us sit under the kindness that's expressed through the preaching of the Word of God. And if you're with us for the first time, or perhaps the first time in a while, we are working our way sequentially through John's Gospel. And uh, if you're visiting with us, we love the fact that you're here. And church family, you'll know that we're in John chapter 6. And so I want to invite you to turn with me there. John chapter 6. You'll know John chapter 6 begins with this large crowd following Jesus. They'd seen the signs which Jesus had been performing on those who were sick. Jesus goes up onto a mountain. He sat down there with his disciples. The people started coming towards Jesus. They were trying to get a little bit of a break. Jesus then tells them about the kingdom, continues to heal various sicknesses. And then he feeds 20 plus thousand people, men, women, and children. He has the disciples as instruments in that. You remember we're involved in... God's work. Christ then has them gather up 12 baskets, one for each disciple, displaying that Christ provides for his people. And then last week we considered that amazing little account of a very big, significant comfort, and that is that Jesus is with us in our storms of life. He ordains them. He oversees them. He's working in and through them. And He is not only the source of our life, He is the sustainer of our life. And now, this morning we come, as we go further and further into John 6, we come to verses 22 to 30. I want to read, picking up in verse 16, through to verse 40. So we have set before us the context. And so follow along with me in your Bibles, John chapter 6, verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Verse 22, the next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one. And that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father, God, has set His seal. 
Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, we come before You with hearts overflowing with gratitude. Father, we thank You that You have set aside this special day referenced in the book of Acts as the Lord's Day. The day where we come to worship you and you do a mighty work of grace in our life. Thank you for all that happens on this Lord's Day. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that he attends us as we worship you. And so we ask, Lord, would you attend us now? Grant us clarity of mind and of mouth, attentive hearts, soft hearts. Would you work a great work of sanctification and regeneration in the heart of anyone who is outside of Christ today? Comfort your saints, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is the third part, I believe, in a series in John 6 I've called Our Jesus. Seems quite fitting in light of the gospel of John itself, of John 6 itself, of the passage we're in itself, to once again quote from that beautiful Heidelberg Catechism from 1563. You remember the question, what is your only comfort? What's your only comfort in life and in death? The answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives is this. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. End quote. I can't get enough of that. That's why I keep quoting it. I hope that you can't get enough of that. It's such a beautiful, beautiful statement. 
we find ourselves obviously continuing in John 6. John 6 is one unit. If you look at verse 1 of John 7, it says, after these things. And if you look at the very first verse of John 6, it says, after these things. And so John 6 is this one very long unit, 71 verses. And it contains some of the richest themes in all of Scripture and in this gospel itself. These words to the people that Jesus makes in our passage of consideration this morning come obviously after the feeding of 20 plus thousand people and the event of the storm that we journeyed through last week and the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. These words to the people are jammed between the bread of life discourse, the storm, and the feeding of the 20,000. Jesus says there in verse 35, I am the bread of life. That statement, I am, is obviously the first of seven I am statements by Jesus. Significant statements. Our passage of consideration, as I said this morning, is verses 22 30. And in these words to the people, Jesus is setting the scene in many ways to be able to declare that He is one from whom true and lasting satisfaction and fulfillment comes from. So often with the I am statements, there'll be an event that takes place that sets the scene for Jesus to be able to say that. You'll remember John 11, we considered that last week with Lazarus. Jesus stayed back. He delayed. He then walked through all he did with Mary and Martha so that he would be able to declare, I am the resurrection and the life. And so, before Jesus in these verses that we're going to consider this morning is not the twelve, not the twelve disciples, but the tens of thousands they're seeking Jesus. You remember they had witnessed Jesus healing them. They had Jesus talking to them about the kingdom. They had miraculously been fed by Jesus. They were so excited, you remember, that they wanted to make Jesus king on the spot then and there. And now they wake up in the morning, the following morning. No doubt they've had a good sleep or maybe they had a bad sleep due to indigestion by overeating. You remember Jesus gave them as much as they wanted. Food was a little different back then. No supermarkets, no drive throughs And so getting a meal wasn't exactly like it is now. And so I'm sure they ate a lot. They slept well, I'm sure. You remember it was on green grass. Things had changed for them. Things had changed for them. They're excited. They're enthused. They want to see Jesus. They want to be with Jesus. And so they come down to the lake. The very shores of the lake. I've broken verses 22 to 30 into three. As we go through this event, we will encounter first, if you're taking notes, I always like to give them to you. We'll encounter first, number one, an audience, an audience in verses 22 to 25. And then second, an accusation in verse 26. And then an appropriation, an appropriation in verses 27 to 30. That'll be the three things that we encounter. And so as we begin, the first thing we see is, as I said, an audience in verses 22 to 25. Look at verse 22. The next day, the crowd, stop there. Matthew 14 and verse 22 and Mark chapter 6 verse 45 tell us that this 
massive group who had been fed by Jesus slept in the place where they had been fed. And so think about that. John tells us it was nice green grass. There would have been lots of people, lots of food, fun times. It was a sleepover. There was a sense of community. I'm sure they sung. There was a sense of fulfillment and sense of purpose. There was happy times. There was joy. And the one who had brought that into their life was Jesus. And so it's only fitting, isn't it, that they wake up and they want to see Jesus. They want to find Him. Now, one thing I can tell you from chapter 6 here on out is that any further conversations Jesus has stem from these people asking Him questions. Here in verse 25, the people ask, you see there at the end of verse 25, when did you get here? That is, to the other side of the lake where the crowd will soon go. Seeking Jesus. And then look at verse 42. After Jesus has said that he is the bread of life, the true manna sent from heaven to give life and joy to all who believe, the people ask in verse 42, look there, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? And then in verse 52, look there, the people ask, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so there really is this seeking after and this searching for Jesus and inquiring about Jesus is clearly being displayed by John here. The Apostle John. You remember John is written so that people might come to believe in Jesus. And then having believed, that's not the end. Having believed, we then live out life that we have in His name. We sang that last week, that His life is in our veins. I like that. There's many things that can run through our veins. But the life of Christ runs through our veins. And so John is committed here to his purpose in writing that people who come to Jesus and believe in Jesus have life in Jesus. Meaning, Peace with God and peace with one another. Pardon for sin and then power for living. You remember that. Don't ever forget that. The duplex gratia, a Latin phrase that just means double graces. The Apostle John had written in John chapter 1 verse 17 that from his fullness, from the Father's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And we receive grace in the pardon of our sin, peace with God, and we receive grace In the power to live out our life. The people in our passage this morning are certainly seeking and searching for Jesus. I mean, look again at verse 25. It says, they said to him. That is, they asked him a question. And then in verse 28, look there. It says again, they said to him. And then again in verse 30. They said to him. And so three times, this crowd of people here in our passage says something to Jesus. They ask something of Jesus. And each time, Jesus responds. Back to verse 22 now to get our bearings a little. Look there with me. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one. And that Jesus had not entered into entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Obviously, as the people awake, it dawns on them that Jesus is not around. But they'd seen Jesus send the twelve disciples out into the water on a boat. You remember I made mention last Lord's Day that Jesus sends us out into our storms so he can accomplish his work in and through us and have us lean upon him and praise him for being the sustainer of our life. So the people see that Jesus had not gotten into the boat that was there. So naturally, Jesus should be around. 
They're seeking Jesus. Where is he? Obviously, the crowd did not know what had occurred that night. They likely knew or heard that Jesus had gone up on the mountain near them alone to pray. But they wouldn't have known, would they, that Jesus walked on the water. They couldn't see that far. The storm was raging. They, couldn't, they wouldn't have known that. They wouldn't have known that he got into the boat with the twelve, teaching us and them that very powerful lesson. Which if you missed that from last week, you can pick that up online. But the large crowd had no idea what happened the night before. Verse 23 then tells us that there were other boats on the shore where the people were. Look there. There came other boats from Tiberias. You remember from verse 1 of John 6, it spoke of the other side of the sea of Galilee or Tiberias. And so that's on the other side. And with these boats here that are mentioned in verse 23, we can't really be sure where they came from or how they got there. But the two main guesses are that the storm blew them down. It's a possibility. We don't know. Another possibility is that the people from that Tiberius Galilee side heard about all that was going on. It would have been quite the amazing thing. And they wanted to get amongst it all. Some even suggest that they, the water taxis arrived and wanted to come pick up the people and take them over the other side. We don't know for sure But we do know that there's these boats there and this large crowd is on the east side of the lake and they realize now that Jesus is not there and there's boats that have come down to the shore. You can imagine the scene. 20,000 people is is a big crowd. I wouldn't imagine, although we don't know for sure, but I wouldn't imagine that that entire group of 20 plus thousand gets in these boats. That'd be a lot of boats in a long time. But a number of people get in these boats and they're ferried across to the other side. According to verse 24, they get in the boats, they sail to the west side, which is Capernaum. And that's obviously where Jesus is. And verse 24 tells us they are seeking Jesus. They're searching for and seeking Jesus. They are a gathering audience. This is an audience here. Now, you may ask the question, why did they, or how did they know where to go? Why did they head west? Why not north or south? Why to Capernaum? I mean... There's certainly no phones to text each other. Where are you? The GPS. So they're just on the shore and we don't really know. Why why they know? Well, interestingly enough, Matthew's gospel tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, that obviously Jesus grew up in Nazareth. We know that. And after leaving Nazareth, which obviously was his hometown, Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus moved to Capernaum. He moved there. Jesus was born somewhere else, but he moved to live in another place. That's the same for you and I often, right? We were born in one place, and then we adopt another. We adopt another place. And so Capernaum, in many ways, was Jesus' adopted town. And so the people knowing that, it's quite sensible then for them, for then, to search for Jesus there. And so they head to the west side, the other side. Look at verse 25 now. When they found him. They found him. John wants us to see that the ones in verse 24 that were seeking Jesus now find him. They found him. They were searching. They found him. This group of people who were searching... They now found what they were looking for. And as they all got out of the boats and gathered around, they were now this audience for Jesus to address. 
And Jesus now certainly does address them. And to their shock and their amazement, he assesses them like only God can. Like only God the Son can. And let me just say this by way of application. Considering how they got from one side to the other and what they were seeking, they found. If people are eager to find Jesus, they will. They will. God will grant you the means to get to Him like He did with these other boats that blew onto the shore or arrived by other means. If you want to find Jesus, He will bring about circumstances in your life for you to do that. That may be through another person, that may be through a family, or whatever it may be. If you want to find Jesus, God will grant you the path to that. There are some of you within earshot of my voice who are being exposed to Jesus. Someone or some family is your little Tiberius boat. And you're face to face with life in Jesus. It's standing right in front of you. And so, first in our passage, we encounter an audience. The next thing we encounter in verse 26 is an accusation. An accusation. In verse 26. The people have found what they're looking for. But here is where things get rough. They get rough. You see, the people who were searching for Jesus were not really searching for Jesus. You say, that makes no sense at all. I'll tell you why that statement is true. They were searching for the benefits from Jesus. It's two very different things. You know, in contrast to the world, Christians are often, but not always, we often stand out as blessed people. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel or anything erroneous and wicked like that. I'm just talking about in contrast to the world, we often have some measure of stability about us. Some measure of attraction. I'm not saying we're all pretty and handsome, but we often have visible and tangible marks of God's blessing in our, in our life. Because of God's peace and because of God's loving kindness towards us, we do stand out from the world in speech, in values, in worldview, and because of the joy that we have in Christ. I can remember this before I was saved, truly saved, I was acquainted with the Christian surfers group. They're lovely people, kind people. I still am in contact with them today. They put up with me. But there was a mark of attraction about the Christians that I could look out on. They got married and had children and they held down jobs and they didn't swear and they didn't laugh at things that were wicked and kind of stood out. We do often hold down jobs. We live in community. We live under the care and blessing of the Creator, the Creator who meets our needs and who guides our path. And so we're attractive in some ways to the world around us. What's just as sure and certain too, though, is for our beliefs and who we are united to, namely the Son of God, is that we are in the crosshairs of the world and its rulers. We read in John 17 before about the Son praying to the Father, saying that the world hates us and hates Him. And so 
But for general people, everyday people, sometimes there's a real visible attraction to our way of life and the outcome of our way of life. There should be. And that canon does attract people to the church and to Christianity and to Christ. Over the years, like you, I've known uh, many people who have sort of come and lived under the shade of the blessing of God. They look on and they see everything that I just described and they see the joy and the fun and the contentment and the stability and they want that. And rightly so. You know, over the years, we've had searchers, seekers come here to our church and to ministries, I think, of like sports camp and the like. And often I'm chatting to them and I'll say to them, whether it's outside in the fine weather at sports camp or after church or wherever it may be, on the lawns or in the conservatory, and I'll ask them, look out over the people. I want you to stop, and, and I do, do this often, I want you to stop and just have a look out and see that. That's the people who have just gathered for worship. They've just had their minds renewed by the preached Word of God. They have sung to our great God, and they're now enjoying fellowship with one another. And I say to them, see that peace. Have a look at that. Yes, they say. See the joy? Yes. I've often said to some of them, this is as close to what heaven will be like as you can get here on earth. And I say to them, the reason that there is that visible display of peace and joy and not chaos and mayhem and immorality is because Jesus has given us new life. I also say to them, don't think for a moment that we're not sinners with struggles. And don't think for a moment that we don't experience hardship and pain. And don't think for a moment that we don't sometimes respond in poor ways. But I say to them, we have peace with God. And we have peace with each other. And we have pardon of our sins and we have power to live out this life. And the reason is because Jesus has given us new life. We've acknowledged that our sin is great. But we have received the Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is greater than all our sin. When you explain that to them, there's this excitement in their eyes. I mean, it's heartbreaking really to think of how many people I've seen come to church or to sports camp or the like or out on the street in evangelism or whatever it may be. And I know this is your experience as well. It's heartbreaking to think how, how excited they get and they come under the shade of the blessing of God and Christianity for a while, but then they're gone. They're just gone. They are gone because what Jesus says in verse 26 that we'll read in a moment, that he says to this large crowd, now they're gone because it's true of them also. You see, Jesus turns to this excited crowd who are eager to be around him and by extension to be around his people. And he accuses them of something. And he's blunt and he's direct. And he himself could be accused here of being too blunt and too direct. But the difference is that as God, he alone knows exactly what is going on in the hearts of a person and people in front of him. And he says to them now, look at verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, you search for me, you want me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. That is a heavy indictment. It is heavy, and it's also true. The people had just been given physical bread as much as they could eat. They'd seen the miraculous, they had witnessed the supernatural, and that caused them to seek Jesus. But now Jesus turns to them and says, you're not really seeking me for the spiritual side of things, which is what truly matters here. 
When Jesus says in verse 26, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs. He's saying there what the signs signify. They signify something spiritual, something grander than what's just before you. You're not really seeking me for the spiritual side of things, for what, is, what truly matters. But instead, you are simply seeking me for the earthly benefits you can reap from me. I often know with those seekers that I described before who come under the blessing of God, the moment a call to holiness or a call to turning away from their sin or a call to abandon mother and father and whatever it may be, they're gone. We know at the end of this gospel, don't we, in verse 66, that it says many of the the people followed Jesus no more because it was a hard saying. It was a hard thing. Here's a lesson. Here's a clear lesson, and it has layers and levels to it. In, in light of what Jesus says here in verse 26, that you're not seeking me for the spiritual side of things and what truly matters, but you're just here for the earthly benefits. The people were, this is the lesson. The people were, in one very real sense, interested in Jesus. They were. They were looking to Him. They were examining Him. They were finding joy in Him. And no doubt, the twelve disciples stood out to them as well. They would have. So that's real. But what is very real also is that they were not going below the surface of self. They were not going below the surface of self. Their minds, their affections, while looking at Jesus, were actually upon themselves. That's what's going on here. They were having their earthly needs met in that they were getting their hunger satisfied, but they were missing what Jesus was actually teaching them and calling them to. What I mean by that is this. Instead of seeing the bread they were given as a sign to signify that Jesus can be their life-giving source and provider and sustainer, they saw only the bread. Leon Morris put it well in his commentary when he wrote, quote, Instead of seeing in the bread the sign, they had seen in the sign only the bread. End quote. It's a good way to put it. In many ways, the people were moved to Jesus not by hearts that were full for Him and having affections for Him, but stomachs that were filled by Him. And then since it's the next day, it was time for breakfast. Jesus assesses their hearts and then accuses them. And his accusation is obviously true. I want you to imagine for a moment that Jesus simply just left it at that. That he just said, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Imagine Jesus then just got in the boat with the twelve and left them with that stinging word, of rebuke rebuke and reproof. But that's not how Jesus works. With the people, the general populace, the precious people, He was always patient and kind. We see from the New Testament with men who were leaders and the religious leaders, all of which who should know better, He was at times very strong and from our perspective, quite harsh. I mean, go read Matthew 23. But with the general people, he was always gracious. He was also loving as well. He loved them enough to tell them the truth. As he did here in verse 26. But he doesn't leave it there. Doesn't leave it there. 
Because he comes now with words in verses 27 to 30 of great importance. And that is the third thing we encounter this morning. An appropriation in verses 27 to 30. Look at verse 27. After stinging accusation of truth, knowing their true motives about why they were coming to him, he then says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. This is, this is the event, you could call it the evangelistic loving kindness of our Savior. He, he brings a strong word of rebuke, of correction. He doesn't leave him there. Out of his kindness, he wants to draw them to himself. He, he has come, sent from the Father's love, to draw people to himself. Do not work for the food which perishes. He's not saying to the people there, stop working. Some of you have fishing businesses on this lake. Some of you, no doubt, bake bread. I don't know what you do. Whatever it is, I'm not saying to you, stop working. It's important that you keep working, that you provide. After all, God tells us that the one who doesn't provide is even worse than an unbeliever. What he's saying here is don't look for your joy. Don't look for your satisfaction in this kind of food which perishes. But work or labor for the food which endures to eternal life. Do we take from here that Jesus is saying that that our salvation is by works, that we must come with continual work to receive this eternal life? No, look what he says there. This is something that the Son of Man, I love this, will give to you. Will give to you. We know from Romans chapter 6 that salvation is a free gift. We don't work for a gift. You can never earn a gift. Salvation is freely bestowed upon all who would believe. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus says to them, This is the work of God that you believe. Just believe. How you go from being a lukewarm, self-centered seeker of Jesus to being truly born again is you believe. You acknowledge that I have been attracted to Christians. I have been attracted to this community of faith. But I've only come that far. I must acknowledge that I can't just come for the earthly physical benefits. I must come for the spiritual realities. Because that's what I believe. That's what I must believe. I must believe that I'm a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? The poor precious people just don't get it and they're unable to get it. Paul tells us, tells the church in Corinth that a natural person is unable to understand the things of God. There must be a work of God upon their heart in order for them to believe. When you think about it, these people here, they're not too dissimilar to the woman at the well. Do you remember all our messages on that living water? We asked ourselves, what's in the water? <clears throat> that woman didn't understand at first. She was just thinking on an earthly, physical level. 
Jesus' words here in verse 27 to 30 are beginning to open the way for the beautiful bread of life discourse that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. But he's being very kind here. He's telling them how they can move from being superficial to spiritual. The food that Jesus speaks of there is himself. It's himself. He is bread. He doesn't give bread. He is bread. Beautiful words where Jesus is dealing with the right matter. Jesus cares about our physical predicaments. Matthew chapter 6, he tells us not to worry because his father feeds the little sparrow and we're worth much more than a little sparrow to the father. Jesus cares about our physical, but here Jesus is really driving home what is of primary importance. As we close, I want to make a couple of extensions by way of implication here. You know, one problem that has plagued many believers and has plagued the world as a whole, as we've navigated these last couple of years. It says, J.C. Ryle put it concerning our passage this morning. It's that quote. Jesus' words here is a rebuke to believers and the world in general, giving excessive attention to the body while the soul is neglected. We mustn't labor for the body which perishes and protect it at all costs. We must labor for the Son of God and bring Him glory at all costs. We've got to minister to the whole person. You know, as we think about this encounter, really... I don't believe it's a stretch. James Montgomery Boyce doesn't either. So I take comfort that I'm not the only one. But by way of extension, there's really kind of two types here that we could draw from our passage this morning. Those who are not born again and just chasing the earthly bread. And this is a warning, believe. You must believe. But also by extension, we who believe, we can be given to that same heart at times, can't we? Of just focusing on the benefits we get from Jesus instead of the giver of those benefits. Do you know what the remedy of that kind of thinking and pattern that believers we can fall into? The remedy to that kind of thinking, which includes excessive, obsessive protection of the body at the expense of the soul and what nourishes the soul. It's the means of grace. The preaching of the Word of God. The Lord's table. The assembly of the saints. The singing of praises. The corporate prayers. The fellowship. This is what God has ordained to help us remain focused on the food which endures to eternal life. You notice the phrase at the end of verse 27? Hopefully you saw that I skipped over it and were wondering what I was going to do with it. It says there, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. The Father, who is God, has set His seal Upon the Son. This happened in eternity past. This has only ever been the reality eternally. But there is this beautiful eternal decree. And we read about it in John 17. Where Jesus says all that the Father gives me will come to me. Well John 6 he says that. But where he says that the ones that you have given me. They're the ones that I have died for. They're the ones that I am living and praying for. They're the ones that I hope are sanctified and I pray that they are sanctified by your word. Here Jesus is saying that 
I've been sent by my father to fulfill a mission. My father has given me a certificate of authenticity and all the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so Jesus has the authority and the majesty to therefore then dispense spiritual life and spiritual sustenance. Praise God. Father, we come before you and thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We thank you for this precious portion of Scripture. Lord, when we plumb the depths of your word, and I'm not saying we have, but when we delve down into your word, your loving kindness and your glory is revealed. And Lord, we're frail and weak and we need you every hour. I pray for anyone here, Lord, who has not yet come to the food which endures to eternal life, that they would acknowledge that they are finding Christianity attractive but they now need to come to Christ to have peace with God. We pray for this precious church family that would continue to look to Jesus, love Jesus, love one another, and bring God the Father glory by how we do that. And all God's people said, take care.